0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipilevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: A period of nearly 18 years in the mid-20th century, from late 35 until mid-1953, the center of Washington, D.C., was not 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, nor was it the Capitol, but rather 476 F Street Southwest. If you look on a map and try to find it, you won't because now it's buried by the 395 Freeway. Yeah. So that was the home of my great-grandparents in Washington, D.C., where he served as the role of the city. And it's interesting to note of the, all of the uh, issues that went into him coming to D.C. and everything that he did there and uh, what he has done on behalf of the community in D.C. and by extension, the, what we have today in America is also, to an extent, because of his efforts in general. Um, he was born in a nice little city in Lithuania, as mentioned in Yenishuk or Yoniskis on the map in northwest Lithuania in the nineteen. Sorry, in eighteen eighty six. Um, we don't know that much about his fa- his parents' families. When we say his father's family, his father, of Moshe, Mar- uh, sorry, Rav Binyamin, um was a Talmud Chacham, he was the unofficial Rav of the town at the time, he did not serve as a Rav, his mother was a baker and his father chopped the wood for the bakery. Um, his father also was not a well man physically and passed away at approximately 1906 when, uh, when my great-grandfather was only approximately 1920 years old or so. And uh, we really don't know much about his family, Bukhwal. Uh We know he had a sister, Tilly, who ended up moving to South Africa, which led to a very interesting uh, scene that uh, my brother, thanks to some uh, detective work, found a picture of Hermat Seva in the cemetery in South Africa, where it's Tila of Moshe <coughs> Halevi. As far as we are aware, our family are not Levim. We scratched our heads and wondered, where did that come from? Um, the best guess that we have is that whoever made the Matzeva made a mistake and that her husband who's buried next to her was a Levi and therefore whoever carved the matseva made a mistake there otherwise we all have big problems because there have been Pidyon Abens in the family since that time <laughs> I would hate to think that we've had to deal with a brothel of Atala each time a Pidyon ben was made and so that's just uh, what happens when you try to research families going back a hundred years or more um, he was the second oldest of eight children, I believe. He was uh, spotted early in his youth as being a bar and was sent off to the local yeshivas. His first Rebbe, I believe, was mentioned in here at uh, the local shul in uh, Yenishuk. Was, uh, he ended up learning it by uh, in Grushed nearby with uh, the Pinsker Rav of Aaron Vulcan, who is known as the Machaber Sefer Beich Aaron. And he was considered, he considered himself a Talmud Movok of the Beisara. Um, when he was 17, he went to Knesset Ves, Ves Yitzchak in Psqobotka under Rukhaim Rabbanovitch, known as Rukhaim Telzer, and became one of the top Tamidim there, and known as, in, in the style of the time, as Shia Yanishkar, because people didn't care about last names, they only cared about where you came from. And um, when Rav Chaim left Barajin, he was uh, one of the Bachrim who was heavily instrumental in bringing Rav Baruch Ber to the yeshiva. So he was, I guess you could say, in the first round of the yeshiva because he never <coughs> learned in Kamenetz. He was still in the yeshiva in Slebatka. As we all know, there were two yeshivas in Slebatka, Knesset Beis Yisrael and Knesset Beis Yitzchak. So he was learning in Beis Yitzchak at the time <coughs> and became very close with Rav Baruch Ber. And uh, he's generally considered to be one of the Tamidim of Hakim of Baruch Baer. Um, uh, as he's mentioned, and for those who read the introduction, in the original Smicha that he gave to my great-grandfather, Baruch Ber wrote that he is a future to be one of the Gaonim of Fursanim Israel. So uh, very nicely done. But then again, for those who have actually read the or attempted to read if you try to read it in the original, it makes you wonder how anybody was able to understand anything back then, because Peminship was a lost art back then as well. It was nice and beautiful and flowery and almost impossible to read unless you have any idea what you're reading to be beforehand. So, well, <laughs>
0: that's what people work on kisvei <laughs> Exactly. have to do. What have to do. Again, some, just uh, parenthetically, I spent a couple of years working on uh, a yeah. um, and basically, what you have to do is detective work. You actually see, you get hundreds and hundreds of pages, and then you figure out how the authors' letters work and how he writes, and then eventually you go back. So it is painstaking work. Yeah, you know, so here for
1: example, here's a picture of Xavier. Anybody can make out more than a few letters in here. That would be appreciated. <laughs> Somebody managed to do it, yes, but uh, the most legible part is the stamp on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> but that is how that is how uh, we wrote back in the day before typewriters. I like am this morning. <laughs> would, the answer or the question? The <laughs> um, in 1907 he married Fagidvora Schafer, Schaefer, Schaefer, Safras Lithuanian, or the daughter of one of the most Khashcher families in the town of Zeshmir in Lithuania. Um, We don't know as much about that family. We know that she had at least two brothers, one of whom made it to America in the 1920s. Actually, when uh, my great-grandfather and family came over from Europe, actually, let me change that. When my great-great-grandmother came over with the rest of the family from Europe, my great-grandfather and family came on a different boat, it was her brother who came to meet them at the docks. So, the uh, family connections were stronger than geography at the time. So, it was an interesting story. One of her brothers was the principal of the local Tarbut school in Lithuania, which is a story for another time. Tarbut was a chain of schools throughout Poland and Lithuania, nominally secular, was a abashedly Zionist and pro Hebrew. Uh, my grandfather attended the school and uh, they did a documentary about it in the late 80s and at the time he was one of the last graduates remaining of the entire chain and uh, he maintained his religious outlook uh, even though the school was nominally um, pro-secular but his uncle was, one of the prin- was the principal of the local school another brother was the fire chief and supposedly was the inventor of the first horseless fire carriage in Lithuania first uh, automatic fire engine in Lithuania and uh, one of his children we're not sure which children which uh, side they came from two, ch- two cousins survived one in Columbus, Ohio who came before the war another one actually survived in a partisan group in, in Europe and made it to Eretz where he lived out a long life at uh, Kibbutz Emon wherever that is in Eretz my grandfather actually remained in contact with them it's a fascinating story
0: just, if everybody, just want you to notice here we did put Lithuania up here on the map so you'll know what it is we're talking about here's Vilna here, uh, here it, you can see from the uh, the, the Mugendavids and the crosses uh, how the Jewish and Christian population was, uh, it, it was centered you can see the city that uh, that Rabbi Yeshua was from Rabbi Sheila was from was up here Yanishka Janush, is right up here and for some reason here it doesn't have a cross or <laughs> a uh, or a, uh, a Mogendavid but a little research that I did last night indicated by around 1900 uh, it was basically even the amount of Jews and non-Jews in the town so it was actually, you can see here that this is, this is yeah. so go ahead, just want people to get sure. a sense of perspective of
1: where we are. Years, I remember that uh, my uh, great-uncle came up to my grandfather in Baltimore one day to visit when we were there, and my grandfather opened up a safe from a shelf and pulled out a map to show his younger brother where they had come from. Um, that was before the days where everybody walked around with a camera, so I couldn't go get a copy of the map and figure it all out on my own. So we got to thank uh, Wikipedia and all the Google Maps and everybody for at least trying to put out something so we have an idea of what happened. So he got married then. Um, after he got married, he spent approximately two years in the Kolo of Rechim in Baloshin under River Falshpira, from whom he also received smicha. His oldest son um, was born there, and then he received his first job as a rav in the town of, where is it? It was um, not Zaskovich, it was, it was Zaskovich, which was near Vilna, not too far away from Vilna. It was
0: Vilna. So here's is it, Vilna. And here's Kovna. Here. This, right. is, this is where the yeshivas were. The
1: two Slavotkas were over here. Where, and here's yeah. Vilna. So Zaskovich was somewhere near Vilna. <clears throat> I don't know exactly. It was in the Vilna district, which was pretty large. And these are all uh, the equivalent of states and counties in America. So it was a pretty large area. So in Zaskovich, he was uh, well-known, is a very popular rub That all ended, of course, in World War One. When uh, World War I of itself was a problem, but then when you throw in the Bolshevik Revolution at the end of World War I, let's just say uh, the Nazis gave the, uh, learned everything they had from the Bolsheviks and then added some more. Um, we're spoiled rotten here in America because we don't understand what it's like to uh, really have a war and be a refugee, Baruch Hashem but uh, my uh, great, great aunt told us a story that uh, one day, it was probably in the middle of the war, there was a knock on the door one afternoon and somebody said they're coming for you tomorrow it was the Bolsheviks who had a policy of stamping out anybody intelligent in town, either they were educated or a, a tradesman or religious leader, and they packed up and fled that night, leading to uh, quite a few years of living as refugees. It's, uh, Baruch Hashem, we don't have to deal with these things. Nowadays, we think of refugees, you think of refugee camps sitting out in the middle of Nowheresville in Syria or Iraq, but at least you've got the UNHCR, to provide supplies, that didn't exist back then. They basically lived in abandoned box cars or working boxcars on railroad tracks and rail yards, and uh, they would have to send their oldest son, who was nine years old at the time, for to try to barter on the black market to get food for them. One day, the train left without him, and it took him two weeks to uh, reunite with his family. That gives you an idea of what uh, life was like, and that definitely had an impact on him, I don't know exactly how, how much, but it definitely impacted his wife. Um, some of you may have heard of a country called the Soviet Union. So, uh, back in the 1950s, there was the, the Rabbinical Council of Americas organized the first and only rabbinical mission to the Soviet Union, and the entire leadership of the RCA went to go check up conditions for Judaism in the Soviet Union. That's entire except for one the executive secretary. Um, Izzy Claven, or Bisrol Claven, who uh, eventually became a Vex- executive vice president and served in that function for a total of about 30 years, he did not go. Why? Because when he told his mother about the trip, his mother replied, over my dead body, you're going back there. They probably still have your name on a list from back in the Bolsheviks. They're probably going to throw you in jail or do something to you. There's no way you're stepping foot in there. And he listened to his mother and didn't go. <laughs> so uh, it obviously... Kept, had an impact on life then. So eventually they ended up and migrated further south and east and ended up in the city of Kursk. Based on the maps that I've seen, Kursk is southeast Russia. I don't think that's where they went because logically they, they said they went further into central Russia. It might have been a different city of Kursk. And practically speaking, you wanted to get as far away from the border as possible because the further inland you went into the Soviet Union, the less crazy they were, and which is not exactly saying much, but they were more concerned about the border areas. And he survived there for a few years. He helped organize the refugee community there in the city and managed to stay there until around 1921, when he managed to get his way back to Lithuania, where he was appointed the Reverend in the town of Gilvan Gilvoni, somewhere near uh, Kovna. And uh, the town name Kovna, is not from the town of Gilvan. Klaven comes from much earlier. To be honest, there are three different towns in Poland, Russia, Lithuania that have a name similar to uh, Klaven. So uh, Tom Glavin and I share a 33% chance of having uh, been neighbors or relatives somewhere back in Europe. Tom Glavin, the the picture. Yes, the picture. You also
0: come from Gilvan. Possibly. Okay.
1: Well, once again, there are three different towns with that name.
0: That sound like Klaven. Yes.
1: Clevin, Glevin, Gilvin. Yeah. Right. Are, my aunt kept telling me that we were always told if you're, if they're Clavin from X town, then we're related. There are plenty of Clevins running around in this country who we're not related to. So uh, what can I say? Anyway, Gilvan, he stayed there for another three years, also very successful. Um, but as we all know, life was interesting there, and basically it was a poor town, and they couldn't afford to pay him that much. So he finally listened to his mother, and in 1924, packed everybody up and emigrated to America. His mother, who basically the family followed him around, because his father passed away in 1906. His older brother had already gone off to South America, to South Africa by then. So there's an entire branch of Klovanskis and Feinzinger's running around in South Africa and beyond. I've met, I think, one of them over the Internet over the years. So we've got a whole branch of distant cousins floating around there. One grandson apparently was the Israeli ambassador to the Philippines for a few years. Interesting how these things roll around. So the family basically followed him around wherever he was, and um, to an extent, because after all, my great, my grandfather did go to school within his mother's town for a while. And he was there and he came to America, and uh, his, mother, his mother was insistent that he come with the entire family all at once, and not to do what was popular back then, was to go on your own and raise some money and send for them to come later, and uh, he uh, never stopped thanking his mother, A, for getting him to come to America, and B, for bringing everybody all at once because nobody could have foreseen. He definitely did not foresee at the time what would have happened a short 15 years later. Um, The family then moved around. Most of the family ended up in Washington, D.C., even before he did. But my great-great-grandmother ended up in the Bronx, and and actually um, in the Bronx, Mount Vernon, one of those two places, and everybody eventually scattered around, and some migrated down to D.C. Meanwhile, he was up in the Bronx for a year. Then he was called up to Burlington, Vermont, Burlington, Vermont, had three shuls at the Devo- it was a, a prominent community in Vermont, it was called the Jerusalem of the Northeast but uh, that's not really saying much apparently there are only about 200 Jewish families there, but 200 families were still up for three shuls <coughs> there was Alvas Geirim, uh, was was Geirim there was Chaye Adam and uh, the third shul was Ovet Tzedek, so he was the Rav of Ovet Tzedek the Rav of Chaye Adam was a uh, prominent town of Chacham whose name I don't remember off the top of my head, but anybody who does any work on agunas in America will be familiar with him, because he was the Rav who authored the tshuva, being mat to the agunas from the Titanic. So it's, uh, you had, uh, there was Torah in this country before World War II, you just had to dig to morning. find it. He eventually retired the year later, and my great-grandfather became the unofficial Rav of the town, <coughs> and not just the shuv. From a historical perspective, Burlington, Vermont, was uh, be- went on the decline. Um, today, um, Avaz Achim exists, but sorry, Ovet exists as a conservative synagogue. Chaye Adam do- does exist. Was fascinating about two years ago. Somebody had uh, been poking around in the former shul building, which had been converted into apartments, and was doing renovations on a bathroom. And found a mosaic behind the wall. It turns out that was the mosaic from the Mizrach wall around the Aron Kodesh. It's a beautiful piece of work, and they spent quite a bit of money removing that wall and the mosaic, and moving it over to the other shul in town. It's about
0: up here, just if you want to get a yeah. sense where it is. This is where this.
1: That's Burlington, this all is the way Burlington, up there. Up there right? Eight hours from New York by car. Right. Here a we good are. <laughs>
0: We are here, so it's up here. This is Maine, and this is New Hampshire, and here's Vermont, right over here. So this is where... We're Right
1: on the edge of Lake Champlain towards the northern part of Vermont. Um, the actual shul building of OVH Cedric still exists. Um, so so why
0: somebody with such a, you know, someone that you're talking about of such uh, prestige and such a resume, rabbinical resume, so why is it that he's going to Burlington, Vermont?
1: Because Burlington, Vermont well, A it was a viable community. There were plenty there were plenty we tend to forget about it, but there were plenty of these smaller communities scattered throughout America that you've never heard of anymore. Places like Omaha, Nebraska, Des Moines, Iowa, Williamsport, Connecticut, just to name a few, that all these I mean all, Eastern Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and they Jews scattered. And there were plenty of small communities of various sizes, and that was a, a prominent but small community. <coughs> so he was there, but also he eventually saw the handwriting on the wall and realized that it was not a good place to remain. Um, as an aside, so as mentioned, the original school building in Burlington still remains. It has been the source of pilgrimages by family members over the years to go and Take a road trip and see what's going on there. It's currently occupied by a new Reconstructionist congregation. My brother went there two years ago, and uh, they were cleaning out the uh, library, and uh, they insisted on keeping the copy of the Dibre Yeshua that they had picked up over the years, but were more than willing to get rid of other farm that they they literally would have tossed out and not put into a Geniza. He was able to salvage some of that. Good time. Yes. <laughs> um, the uh, Chavakadisha building is still right next door to the shawl. It's in a more, it's less urban part of Burlington.
0: Um, Which is, again, the phenomenon you're describing. And actually, we don't even have to go up to Vermont to see it. It's yeah. always it a couple of blocks here in this city, and we will see basically the same thing. Yeah. Where
1: now, Newark is an extreme example. There's more of a case of this. On Newark and the urban areas of America suffered that fate in the late 60s, this is more of a case of most small, small communities in America. People married and moved away. There were no yeshivas. So they didn't quite come back. Um, I had a cousin that lived there for quite a few years, but there's basically nothing left film right there. Um, in the early 1935, by at least, he had realized that Burlington was going to be a dead end, started putting out feelers to try to get a new position. In fact, one of his letters to, um, to um, what's his name, to, uh, uh, to Blazer Silver, uh, he basically uh, started networking with Ways of Silver, sent back, by the way, there's a shul in Brooklyn, oh, Avramishkin Shiosafe is looking for a rub. Uh, give him a call, They might tell him I sent you. Well, he didn't end up there, but uh, he ended up in Washington, D.C. How did he end up in Washington, D.C.? So that's an interesting family story. So most of his, some of the children went up with him to Burlington. Others stayed in New York. My grandfather stayed with his aunt in uh, the Bronx near White Plains Avenue where he roller skated every morning down to the Lower East Side to go to Shiva Spinning in and eventually up in Washington Heights. Um, the rest of the family was down in Vermont. The next brother, Uncle Harry, decided he was going to go to law school. And the family spent a lot of time figuring out where he can go to law school to be a, and still be Shomer Shabbos. Because one of the major problems back then was shomer shabbos, not just in the job market but also in colleges as well. It was virtually impossible to be shomer shabbos and go to a decent university. Somehow, uh, Uncle Harry managed at University of Vermont, but after a lot of research and negotiation, he ended up at Georgetown. <laughs> Right, which we're,
0: you know, we've heard recently it was at the Senate hearings, right? As yes. One of, one of the top law schools, right? Maybe not as good as Yale, but one of the top law schools. Even
1: back then, so we still I still give them some Harkar Satov for going out of their way to accommodate the first Shomer Chavez law student in Washington, D.C. So that winter, there, there or are now, there are. now there are, but back then, mm-hmm. approximately 1935, there weren't. He was the first. So apparently the family story goes that uh, that winter, my great-grandfather made a road trip down to see how his son was doing. Coincidentally, he fell ill and stayed a week. And while he was there, he davened into Congregation Kamatora, whose rub had just coincidentally left not too long prior to that. And they asked him to give a shear between Hamirub and, and they liked it and he kept going there for the week and he kept giving shirim there and at the end of the week they offered him the job. So the uh <laughs> it's there are no coincidences in life. So there are definitely some planned elements there in that story. And
0: where was that where was That, that was that in shawl?
1: southwest. That
0: was in southwest Washington. Southwest.
1: Southwest really did, was an, as it, the smallest of the four quadrants. There was a community in southeast as well, but Tomator was in southwest. Everything was much more condensed towards the center so of that the time, be, time. So that would be? Underneath the WASH in Washington. Uh-huh. So old, we're uh, ca- on our
0: map, it would be somewhere over here. This is where... Um,
1: actually, a bit below that. we uh-huh. it we're Capitol, Hill? Uh-huh. Capitol Hill? Below Capitol Hill. So that Southwest is basically here. Uh-huh. That's Southwest. You had a small community in Southeast. You had some area concentrated in the inner North East, Northwest and a bit in the inner Northeast as well. But basically, a radius of no more than a mile from Capitol Hill... Was the Jewish community of Washington. Um, he was appointed, he, uh, uh, he was given the job as the Rev of Congregation Talmud Torah. Um, and also, the, as the president and Avvestan of the Agudas his predecessor was somebody who's been mentioned in the Shia before of Kedalia Silverstone, who was sent a very effusive letter at uh, his successor's appointment and uh, yeah. just to
0: remind people who have been in, coming here to the Jersey Giants years, he was the one whose son was involved in bootlegging you might remember, <laughs> and he was the one who would have a lot of uh, pointed barbs against American <laughs> Jews and not respecting their Abana, but he was we, we yeah. talked about him, Hilly you specifically loved <laughs> his, his shtochs, you remember, of Silverstone so he was the Malcolm of Silverstone
1: and he uh, took over as,
0: as the, the robe of as the, the rabbi of the main shuls yeah. he, was, he wasn't the, rabbi, the he, he was,
1: was the, was the rabbi. rabbi of the shul of congregation Talmud and Red also, Stone? no, Red Silverstone was not in Talmud
0: Torah
1: no. he was just. He was the he was he he the,
0: probably the, was,
1: I the head, head of the Agudas uh, 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 but he probably had his own shul also hmm. they couldn't support an independent chief rabbi so um, he was the rabbi of, the, of uh, that shul um, Talmud Torah was known for its most famous congregant was Nathan Jolson, um, the father of Al... Sorry, Nathan Jolson, the father of... who was a chazan in the shul, his most son, father of Al Jolson, of the jazz singer fame. And that was Washington, D.C. And, of
0: course, the, the the story of the jazz singer is really about a Chazan's son, <laughs> right. as you know. Yes, and <laughs> so this was... he was.
1: Uh, you could tell what life was like religiously, <clears throat> When after he was appointed the rub and he was making plans to leave Burlington, he told his family, "If I can build a mikvah and a talmud Torah, then I know I'll be successful." So that uh, tells you something about life in the late 30, early 30s, early thirties in America. So he came down to D.C. and yes, his first job was to build a new mikvah. There was a mikvah in the southeast that was falling apart, and they were able to build a new mikvah at Fourteenth and Perry Street which survived as the community mikvah until the riots of 1967. Um, there's a story that goes that uh, one of the Lubavitcher Rabbanim in town after 67 wanted to try to take over that mikveh and rebuild it and bring it up to modern Lubavitch standards. And in the process, puzzled the bore, and it became too expensive to even consider repairing, and had See, to abandon have, the project. Shoka, you don't,
0: shoka, me right? So
1: the bottom line is, you don't mess with uh, previous generations when <laughs> it comes to mikvahs. Yeah, that was the Alter
0: Rebbe sheet. right. Yeah. they davka Right. It's like the chachamim or metame the koyen mm-hmm. Godol. Right. In other words, they davka use the kula of, of 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 the Ashoka Kula, the chabad mikvahs. So. That's
1: a whole separate discussion. So in Washington, he was the, uh, rather, he was the rub of the ear, very um, involved in all facets of life in town. He um, whipped the shochdum into shape. He uh, gave a on wine. Um, he also, being World War II, had to deal with all of the issues of World War II. Um, I should have asked you to pull up the David Wyman... If anybody... If you, want to, if you have a second. Yes. If you can pull up the David Wyman... Um, this is our, the Holocaust Studies website okay. so people have heard of the rabbis have people heard of the rabbis march of 1943 yes so in lot, 1943 there was a march of orthodox rabbis on Capitol Hill actually they wanted to go and speak to president roosevelt and there was a whole scandal that he David Wyman W Wyman W Y M A N David Wyman Holocaust mm-hmm. Institute mm-hmm. And they ended up not getting to meet the president, they met the vice president, who gave a lot of half-hearted answers, and they held a big rally on the steps of Capitol Hill. It was the first orthodox response to the Holocaust at the time. This was held two days before Yom Kippur, and um, his house became grand central station for all of the efforts in America to, at uh, least, from efforts at least, to help out in Europe at the time. Um, not only did everybody come to him, but he frequently uh, went with them to meet various politicians. Um, the story goes that he sewed his bus pass into the sleeve of his kapata so that way if you had to go to a meeting on Shabbos, at least his, uh, we would be able to take it out Shinoi to minimize the Chilil Shabbos involved. Because, it was, I mean, granted, it was not the fashist, but you still minimize the Chilil Shabbos whenever possible. Um, Rav Cutler was a frequent visitor at his house during that period of time. Um, the reason i mentioned the Wyman Holocaust Institute... If we yeah. go to uh, resources... Resources... Um, no, sorry. Um, publications. Sorry. Publications. No, we're special reports. Scroll down. Was that it? No, it's back. Sorry. Back, um, it's not in resources. The... Um, now go back up to uh, resources again. Yeah, resources. I oh, said, encyclopedia. Uh, no. Go, go back to encyclopedia. Please. Yeah, right. Uh, now uh, news. Um, no. Anyway, if you do a search for um, search for uh, that. search for what? The no, there's, there's a whole section on the Rabbi's March. Uh-oh. There's an entire section Uh-oh. there. Probably go, to, public, go back to publications. Um, articles. um, it's there somewhere. No, um, what? It's there. I, I saw it yesterday. Um, Remember the rabbis marched. It. Yeah, uh, not that the Bergson group. Yeah, the day the rabbis marched. There, go down right there on the, the uh, documents. Go to documents. On second right one there. down. There we go. Scroll down to documents. Um, go to the yeah, go to the document section, part three. yeah. Okay, scroll down another three pages down, three documents down. This is a partial list. Keep going. One more page. Stop. Um, one more. There we go. Scroll down and stop. All right. Um, yeah. So this was one of the organizational letters sent out during the organization of the march. And as it says on the bottom right there in the postscript, right there, perfect, at the bottom of that second, bottom of that bottom there, that page that you're on. It's all on page two. Scroll down to the bottom of that page. Anyway, oh, perfect. So scroll down, trying to figure out doing all of the planning right there. Just had the Secretary General of the Union of Orthodox Rabbis in the office, and he told me that, in the matter of food and rest for the rabbis, is concerned. that you get in touch with Rabbi J. Clavin, four seventy six F Street, <laughs> District four three three seven. That tells you all you need to know. About where the center of Washington D.C. was
0: because it was a Shabbos march.
1: Yeah. So it wasn't on Shabbos. It was two days. Letters to, the phone number for those. Yes, back in the day, <laughs> there were four area codes. There were <laughs> letters on the phone dial, and the mm-hmm. first three numbers of the first three numbers were actually done so based on letter
0: code. Great, your great grandfather was the one who was going to be. He was make gre- sure that the rabbonim that were coming in would be taken care of. Right. It was a Monday
1: March. It was a Monday March.
0: Ah, uh, very good. <laughs> I, 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 I wasn't listening. Right. So was anyway.
1: Um, so just tells you something about him. One of the issues that he had, I mean, we'll get into the truth in another couple minutes, one of the issues that he had to deal with was um, all the war issues, and one of the issues primarily was how to deal with agunas. Mm-hmm. Now, well, about ten years ago, I stumbled across a fascinating article there was an undergrad at Penn in 2007 by the name of Sarah Brager who wrote a nice, beautiful uh, paper for, as an undergrad and Mellon research fellow, entitled Sentence to Marriage Chained Women in Wartime. It was basically a history of get al tonight for people going off to war, primarily focusing on the fact that the abstract says, quote, The Committee on Response of the Jewish Welfare Board, which actually was a board of rabbis of both Orthodox, conservative, and reform movements that actually worked together to deal with practical shyness for the military and the chaplains in the military. and The fact that it actually survived during World War II and functioned relatively well is fascinating and that deserves a share of its own about the history of the whole uh, committee and the Jewish Welfare Board and the like. And the involved with that. The fact that it existed at all was quite impressive. And it, there was a lot of difficult work that went into that to, to keep it uh, viable. It died out eventually by the time we, Vietnam had come to an end. Anyway, so she actually did a whole paper about Get Out Tonight And when she did this in 2006 and 2007, she commented that she was doing it 10 years too late because there was nobody left around who could actually talk about it. She found the last living World War II chaplain from England who was actually uh, functional, and her mother happened to have been in England at the time, and she interrogated him. But she also could not find many copies of actual Gittin that were written out tonight. She did find one, in uh, 2007 for a war veteran living in Scranton, Ohio that Scranton, Pennsylvania signed in June 23, 1944 it's interesting that the family actually kept the get instead of destroying it because they viewed it as they made copies for their children and viewed it as a symbol of the love between uh, the the husband and wife and uh, the affection for each other the footnote there tells the whole story, and I'll read the footnote simply because it tells you all you need to know about this. In a conversation with Mrs. Mildred Harris, I learned that in summer 1944, her husband Sam was 22, had been waiting in a base outside Washington for orders to go to Europe with his infantry unit. They're from Scranton, were Orthodox, and been married a year. She was staying with her brother, a conservative rabbi in Washington. When her husband got his orders, it was her brother who strongly encouraged her husband to sign such a document for her protection. She recalled there had been a case of a woman in Scranton who had remained in Alguna from World War I, and she thinks this was a factor in their decision. Her brother recommended they go to Rabbi Joshua Clavin, an Orthodox rabbi in Washington, a renowned expert in Jewish law, to have the document drawn up. Rabbi Clavin did not use a printed form, but wrote the text out on his own out in his own Hebrew handwriting. Mr. Harris signed it and dated it in Hebrew and English. She did not remember where the document was for the duration of her husband's absence but when he came back, having been wounded in the Battle of the Bulge and hospitalized. He had not destroyed the document, but they had kept it through the years. I am grateful to Mr. and Mrs. Harris for sharing a copy of the conditional get with me, and also to Rabbi Hillel Clavin son of Rabbi Joshua Clavin himself a retired rabbi in Washington, for directing me to the Harris family. He had known about the form because he had once been shown it by Mr. Harris. These are issues that Baruch Hashem we really don't have to deal with anymore, but Agunus in wartime was a serious problem. It really traces itself back. I mean, after his in the Gemara,
0: we would still have to deal with it. On a
1: practical so, level, yeah, sure. it first became an issue in the late 1800s with the wars in Europe. World War I was an utter disaster we don't realize the scale of destruction between the 9 million servicemen killed between the various powers. Millions of civilians were killed in Europe. You basically had the loss of an entire generation of young men. And agunas were a serious problem. Baruch Hashem today, it's not as much of an issue on a wide scale, at least in military matters, as it is. And even today, the military in America doesn't really discuss Get al in Israel, it's a whole other story. But... uh, that's something you had to deal so, with. And,
0: and, and the fact that your great-grandfather was doing it sounds like he was doing bascomas other rabbonim. This, was, this was a procedure, although they didn't do it with great fanfare, it was right. standard procedure for an American uh, Jewish soldier Heading to get a ghetto Right,
1: going overseas. Obviously, calling him had their own special issues, but uh, for non-colonim, that was done for those who asked this was done, and there was a, the article goes through the whole history of it. It's really deserving of its own special treatment. And while there's so much more to talk about, how we founded Yeshiva Space Yehuda, otherwise known today as the Melvin J. Berman Hebrew Academy of Greater Washington, um, that's been, that has educated many over the years. It was one of the first yeshivas outside of the New York City metropolitan area. One of the first, not the first, um, other than Cleveland and Baltimore. In Boston, it was uh, one of the probably first Jewish right day yeah, One of the first,
0: school. one of the first Jewish
1: day schools. Day schools, and uh, it's interesting. how one of the most one of the most prominent teachers there in its early years had started out as a shochet, and uh, one day my Alta lady went to him and said, "Why are you dealing with Mason? Why don't you come deal with Chaim instead?" <laughs> he became a rebbe there in Yeshiva and stayed for thirty years. Um, but dealing with uh, the topic. So we had, he had all these issues. And one of the issues that he had was just that there was a major who had expressed, in the U.S. Army, who had expressed his desire to be buried in Arlington National Cemetery. And unfortunately, Rahmanovitzwan, he drowned, and uh, probably in the Pacific. And uh, the family, and then the, the, one of the other Abunim in town, came to him to ask whether or not they should be allowed to listen to his request to be buried in Arlington. They now, found the body after he was burned? They found the body. Oh, wow. I mean, not every victim in uh, the Pacific, not every victim was lost at sea. They actually recovered many bodies. So wherever, either it was the Pacific or the Atlantic, we don't know the details. That was the question. And he said, look, I mean, many have been buried in Arlington without asking the Shiloh, so let's talk about the Shiloh here. So in order to talk about the Shiloh, you've got to really take a step backwards. What's the We have a mitzvah of kvura, to bury a body. Where does that come from? Anyone? I <laughs> do It's brought down as a mitzvah by Bezdin, that those from killed by best executed by Bezdin and Abedrero. Strung up on a branch and then taken down and buried. And from there, the Gemara learns out that there's a chi of kvura for all Jews, not just Haruge Bezdin. So then you have to bury him. So where do you bury him? So then there's a gemara in Sanhedrin. Gemara in Sanhedrin on. Hey, ah, excuse me on Memvav. Gemara on yeah, Memvav. Okay? Right. So on Memvav on the base, he says that here uh, we go. It's like seven wide lines down. Um, right there at the t- um, top. That's seven wide lines down. Okay. Right there at the top. Actually, let me back that up. That's really not the... Uh, that's real. That's uh, a separate piece. Let me back that up. You want to go down? Actually, um... Yeah. Um, no, we'll start there. We'll hey, start boy, there. Boilu. Well. So, uh, right, right. So, Kvura. What's the point of Kvura? Is it a Kapara issue? That burying is a Kapara for the Nifter or B-Zion issue. And the Gemara doesn't give a tarot. And the Gemara weaves it as Mar as my he doesn't want to be buried so if it's one if it's a kapara issue you could say I don't want the kapara. so you would listen to him but if it's a Zion issue we'll have to community to be more what's going on so there's actually so you this, don't have the,
0: you don't have control of your own body to be right
1: just, now this is actually a separate issue I mean this gets part of it there's really another piece here that um, I put <coughs> up the uh, wrong piece the wrong gemara here the halacha is that ink in Russia is you don't put uh, you don't put uh, two Jews of differing religious status next to each other in burial that's Gemara and okay we got that here too yeah Gemara and Gittin on Samach Aleph actually that's that's not the and Gitten. it does I should have ah here we are Samach back up it's and Zion and Aleph got that here too I think we kept, here yeah, we go right in the middle that Bezdin had two different cemeteries for executions you had one cemetery for those who were for Skiwa and Srefa, and another for Herik and Chenech because you don't put a um, of different status next to each other mm-hmm. so the Gemara says mm-hmm. you don't bury a Russia next to a Tzadik that is why it is very um, right over there and that is why you have all these different groups and cemetery groups and men and organizations and there are many shuls have their own sections and the like to ensure that everybody's buried with appropriate people. I mean, just as an aside, I mean the shul that I go to in Edison, New Jersey, they purchased uh, plots in a local cemetery only to find out afterwards that due to the arrangement of the plots, only about a hundred of them were actually usable because the people surrounding the, cem- the their area of the cemetery were basically uh, not from Jews, and that would be an issue of Kovrin Rushay Tzaddik. Granted, <clears throat> Russia is a relative term because, as we all know, Nevertheless, it's still an issue. So the Basilosev says that in Kovrin Rushay Tzotzadev, Kolshikain Akum. In Kolshikain, you wouldn't bury a Jew next to a non Jew. Now, this, uh, that's the Svara. Now, beyond that, you've got the Gmarin Gittin, which we will throw up over there, that says that because of Darke Shalom, Kovrim, say Akum, and say Yisrael. Now, all the Rishon, the Rashi, the Ran, the Ritva, all say it doesn't mean Mamish with together, but rather you miss Asik Kpahem, and you bury them, but not together. Yeah. Um... Here's the Gemara. There's the Gemar over there. Darke shalom. The Rambam leaves out the word in. And just as Ms. Askim behind. Here's the
0: Rashi.
1: Rashi right over there. Um be kevrah Israel, not with them, but if you then Ms. Askim Harugim. You're allowed to help with you're allowed to help out with the burial because of Dark Shalom. So we don't bury Jews and non Jews together. Which leads to various problems and questions over the years. Um, If those who read the Myron McComas, there's a Chuvus from the Malami Kahoel in there. There's a Menachas Alazar about what type of separation do you need between the two. There's a Bach in Yerodea Kufnan Aleph that says, in time of war, when they fell together in battle, you can bury Jews and non Jews together. In the same chadser, and everybody points out, yes, with the appropriate harchaka between the two sides, that does not mean buried together. Um, just as an aside, the Jewish Welfare Board actually relied upon that a misreading of that run to permit um, Jews and non-Jews to be buried together if they fell together in battle. Um, there's an interesting shuva from Rav Lao that talks about the same topic and he brings down a steer on the run problem with the Rambam, that the Rambam leaves out this issue over here and the Ramayzer well, of comes to the conclusion that there are two aspects to Kvura. One aspect of Kvura is the Mitzvah Daraysek, Yikobotik Marenu there's another aspect of Kvura of Bizayon, that in order that the body should not be laid out as a Bizayon, it's a Bizayon to who? It's not only a Bizayon to the Nifter, but a Bizayon to the family and therefore you bury the body. What comes out according to that is that, well, what's the function of the Chavar Kaddisha? The Chavar Kaddisha's job is to bury. But effectively, whose responsibility is it for Klura? It's the orsham and the family. The Chavar Kaddisha only asks, only functions as a shliach of the family. So if the Chavar Kaddisha doesn't want to do it, or can't do it because it's B'yisr, then it's the family's responsibility. And if the family... And the Nifter agree that it's not a Bizion, then you don't have to do it. That's what Raval comes that's out. In Reval. reality, Here's that's her. really. Her. Right, that's what's true over there, Pehe. Hey, reality, that's just Taesfus over there in Gittin, in Sanhedrin. Taesfus says that the Bizion is not the Bizion of the Nifter, but the Bizion of the family. It's a Bizion for the family to have the body sitting out and not buried. What comes out of that is that if it's not a Bizion, then it should be Motor. So his Psaq was, look, the guy had stated many times in writing, he wants to be buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Arlington National Cemetery is the most of military cemetery in the country. You can't call that bizayon at all. In contrast, it's buried with, we talk about buried with honors. That's what military, anybody who's ever seen a military funeral. It's really, uh, I hate to call it the schmuck, but you really understand the term of burial with honors. You can't call that a b'zayon. His p'sach was that it was mutter. Now, if you would ask asked him about burying in a non-Jewish cemetery, generally, he would have said no. Had he had said, asked for a cemetery other than Arlington, it's questionable. At least in this case, he proskined yes. He then backtracked somewhat. This is a letter, the Chuva in the Safer is written to Revruderman. He was very close with Revruderman. Revruderman was younger, but he was the representative of the Baltimore community upon my, uh, the installation in Washington, and they hit it off and he basically served as the assistant Rosh Hashiva near Yisrael from then on until the nearest... Yes. Yes.
0: Rav was the Rosh Hashiva, but Rav Klavan had was, with, cons, was considered also connected what, to the yeshiva.
1: frequently would come up... Rav was either ill, which happens quite often, or fundraising, and with frequently uh, he would what? go up... What? Which
0: happened even more. Right. Frequently, I thought Rabbi Neuberger, Neuberger did that, but... Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. originally up front, he did a lot of fundraising too, Frequently, he would go up to give shear in Washington, and I was told by at least two different uh, Baltimore. One in Baltimore. Right, in Baltimore, I was told by at least two different v'smalchem of the yeshiva who served as rabbonim in Baltimore, and these were the original tamidim there that uh, I also said say they gave a better shear. <laughs> anyway, so the tshuva was sent that to Rivderman just to get Rivderman's haskama, but really his issue was maybe there's another issue, maybe there's actually a halacha seen a real din deiraisa, about not burying a Jew next to a non-Jew. that's um, actually based on a Rashi here in Sanhedrin. The whole din of Inkor from Roshiit Sulzadik, according to Rashi, is how the says is Lokomosh Missinae, and Rashi therefore takes it to him. It's not that the other Rishonim do not necessarily agree with that position, but there is a point to be said and it's something to think about. Well, say you don't go about this issue rightly. In Eretz Israel, we well based upon this reasoning, Poskin, that unfortunately you have a scenario that we have many uh, Israeli citizens of Russian descent who are of questionable Jewish uh, Jewish background, or halachic, shall we say, questionable Jewish halachic status. And if somebody... And these
0: wives want to be buried next to their husbands, husbands. who are... Who are, who are who are real Jewish who are Jews. real
1: Jewish, where do you bury them? So the wife is buried in a separate cemetery, but can the Jewish spouse be buried next to the non Jewish or questionable Jewish spouse? And his psychology was yes, but only if the non only if the Jewish spouse gives his assent in writing beforehand and the family agree with the caveat, that the family has to be the Jewish family and not the non-Jewish family.
0: So, it, did, did Ravlau see your grand, great grandfather's chuba? Does he mention it, or is it? He doesn't mention it. Uh-huh.
1: But, um, uh huh. But they're
0: stepping. They're, but they're pretty much in the same line. They're, yeah. They're following... So, from the the, the the former chief rabbi of Washington and the former chief rabbi of Eretz Yisroel, their minds meet in some way. In that way.
1: Now, there's a lot more that can be talked about. Uh, my great grandfather.